How are we doing 10 o'clock? We doing good? We doing good? It's good to see your, your beautiful masked faces. Uh, hey, uh, I, like you, uh, spent some of this past week uh, on social media. <laughs> it doesn't end there, though. Um, uh, but seeing pictures, right? And whether it's in our news feed or in the news that we, we digest, we see pictures of, of like big airplanes filled with people escaping harmful uh, hard situations in Afghanistan, and, and we're also aware of what's happening in Haiti. And, and so I, like you, probably ask, like, okay, what, like, what does it look like? How do I, can I do anything? What can I do? There was an article in the Tribune saying, you know, a lot of these refugees are going to be coming to the Seattle-Tacoma area. So here, as Jesus followers here in this community, one of our values is hospitality. Did you know that? One of our values is hospitality. Here's, when the Bible describes hospitality, it's t- it talks about not just kind of like something that you can put on Pinterest, a dope spread that you can put on Pinterest, or if people, do people use Pinterest anymore? I don't know. Uh, but, or put on Instagram, but something where you're actually uh, inviting some and the other into your space. So all of us here, as we see Anchor as our home, we need to be practicing hospitality. And that could look like a couple of different things. It could like, God, open my heart to the other. Open my heart to relationship. It could mean like, open my home. God, are you calling me to open my home it could be like open my calendar. I was talking to a couple in the lobby right after the first gathering and uh, they said, we already prayed about it. I'm like, that's amazing. Uh, you are doing like the Jesus thing. You know, you're praying about something of significance and social issues in the world. That's great. And they're like, we feel like God's calling us to kind of rally our people to make welcome kits for families and partner with World Relief. That is amazing. That's opening up your calendar and your resources. That's hospitality. So I would love for us to kind of do that work of praying, God, what are you calling us to do? Are you calling me to open up my home, my calendar, my resources, my home, my heart? What does it look like? And I'm going to be in the lobby right after the gathering. And if you have ideas or questions or how do I take the next step, um, you know, how do I go from looking at a picture to having something happen in my heart to finding some type of tangible way to help, um, I'm going to be there to help connect you with things that can help you find that next step. Okay? Sound good? Sound good? Okay, there's, there's three people that said, yeah, all right, there we go. All right, there we go. There we go. There we go. You know, we are working, aren't we working on, on trying to remember this isn't a library? You know, it's not a museum. It's not a library. You can interact. That's totally welcome. We cheer that on. Hey, so years ago, I was hanging out with some friends, some friends from college. We were, uh, at a kind of a weekend away, and one of the guys in this group was this, in, in college, he had this kind of like bravado, do you know the guy, like chest out, inspires confidence, and you're like, well, that guy has it together, maybe you know the guy. Um, and, and after college, he went on to, to, to go about more schooling, and so he accomplished some letters at the end of his name, uh, some initials that allowed him to start a practice that allowed him to fill his bank account with a lot of resources that allowed him to buy a really nice house that allowed him to buy a car with, like, it looks like a peace sign, but it's, it's different. It's not quite a peace sign. You know what I'm talking about? You know that car? Who has, no, I'm just, um, he like made it. And there he was, you know, this guy with these resources, still with the bravado, inspiring confidence. I, I spent one night at his house uh, on this weekend. 
And I remember walking into his house and seeing something different. You ever been in a situation where the outside looks impressive and then you walk inside and you see a different scenario? My heart broke as I walked into his living room, a place that's defined by life, right? Living room. Kids spilling things or, or people engaging in conversation, a living room, and there was a, a beach chair and a 70-inch television. Oh. Now, I knew he had a family, but it was when he started to unpack the fact that he had made some decisions that had kept his family from wanting to live in the house that he had bought. And so there I was, and this guy who had an impressive resume, but like a, a broken life. I remember I went for a run with him. And it was there on this run, in between some of the miles, he told me, he goes, Brian, I've never been lonelier. The end of our time together was just he and I. Before I left, he said, could we talk regularly? Could we read a book together? I don't have anyone to have meaningful conversations with. And I, I realized something. Is that when you chase accomplishment and you forget character, sometimes your accomplishments can look impressive, but they end up being just a veneer on an internal life that's eroded. Can I just say something that I think we all know is true? It's that ours as a culture is drunk on outward show and deprived of inward life. Can I tell you something? You, you may not have known it. You may be new to Anchor. If you are, welcome. My name's Brian. What's your name? You may be new to Anchor, but by coming in through the doors, you received an invitation. An invitation to join Jesus in becoming a rebuilder. Here's what a rebuilder is. A rebuilder is someone who, in looking at the brokenness of the world, it could be a strained family, it could be a person experiencing mental, emotional turmoil, it could be a person that can't find the resources to pay for the groceries. And here's the thing, all of us have someone that we know in a situation like that in our life. And a rebuilder doesn't look at that situation and say, well, that's normal, moving on. A rebuilder looks at that situation and has a sanctified imagination, has a kingdom imagination, has a Jesus-dominated imagination and says, what would it look like if the kingdom of God showed up there? I was sitting, can I just be honest with you, in the first row, hearing these songs, imagining just, God, would you bring your kingdom to this world? Oh, would you bring shalom, flourishing? This is what a rebuilder is. Rebuilders can't do everything, but rebuilders move towards the brokenness, believing that the kingdom of God wants to move because Jesus said, pray in this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's what a rebuilder does. But, and here's the caveat, a rebuilder's work begins with God's rebuilding work in us. And in fact, if we do the, walk down the cultural error of placing charisma above uh, character, we will end up maybe accomplishing influence, getting a platform, but it only becoming a liability to those we exercise influence over because we haven't allowed the character work to happen first. While the cultural story is charisma above character, Scripture says 
that greater is him who can subdue himself than he who can take a city. Did you hear that? There's some old kind of old-fashioned Bible language there. You want me to say it again? Greater is him who can subdue himself than he who can take a city. Greater is the one who has worked internally on the rebuilding work, who's allowed God to do that rebuilding work, than he who has a really, really awesome resume. So that's what we're looking at at Nehemiah today. Nehemiah learns a lesson. Maybe he already learned it. No doubt he probably did. But Nehemiah knows and exercises leadership in a way where he recognizes the rebuilding of the walls is significant, important, and vital and needs to go forward. It's an accomplishment that needs to see its way towards fruition. But the rebuilding of the walls is small comparison to the rebuilding of our character as a community. We start in chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. These are people who are working on this rebuilding effort to secure their city in the face of opposition marauders uh, and, and, and those that would seek harm to the city. Some were saying, we, are, our, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. And others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain during this famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on the fields and vineyards, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard this outcry and these charges, I was very angry. <laughs> You gotta love Nehemiah. If you've been with us for any part of the series, you know Nehemiah gets angry a lot. You could say he has an anger issue, but you kind of, it's endearing to me because I'm like, oh, there he goes again. He's getting angry. All right. But check this out. What did he do in his anger? Did he go and flame out, flash out, and lash out? No. I pondered them in my mind. Isn't that interesting? I was very angry, but I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them <laughs> and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us? They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also shook out the folds of my robe. I, this is an interesting thing to imagine. In this way, may God shake out the house and possessions of anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Wow, Nehemiah, there you go. At this whole assembly said, Amen. 
That's a, so we can interact. There's an interact. And praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the 20th year, King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah until his 30th, uh, 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor, but the early governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. I know I'm going fast. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, and all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. And each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. He's getting the grocery list out in front of us. And every 10 days in a abundant supply of wine, hello, of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. I love this last verse. This is interesting to me. It just is like a glimpse of Nehemiah sharing his heart. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I've done to these people, for these people. So, There's so much that's complex in that passage. There's talk about taxation and lending and, and you know, obviously the point is to not get into the nitty-gritty of ancient Near Eastern taxation systems and interest and all that, but there is this beautiful principle that uh, is there for us to learn from. You see, Nehemiah faced what I'm calling a crisis of character. On one hand, he had his faith legacy, You may know the Old Testament, there's so much, interestingly enough, that's talked about how to care for the orphan, the widow, the foreigner, the exile today. It would be the Haitian refugee, the Afghani refugee, the the person who is down and out. And there's so much in the Old Testament law about how how you create an equitable, flourishing system where people can find help that need help. And so, as Nehemiah is, is, is living his life he's, and, and seeing people that are in a tough situation that are crying out for help, he probably remembered this verse that he would have studied and memorized and etched on his soul from Deuteronomy, where it says, Deuteronomy 24, 19 to 22, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It'll be left for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what's left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. It'll be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I am commanding you to do this. I had a glimpse of the meaning of this passage recently uh, in our backyard. I was looking out the back window and I for once saw the blackberry bush as a blackberry bush as something that has blackberries on it. Now it took a, a, a cue from my neighbors who were walking there with these big Tupperwares and I'm like, oh yeah, I like blackberries. How come I've never thought about that? So I waited till they left. Yeah. And I said, kids, Get a bucket. We're going to get some blackberries. And so I brought the kids at their, they were kind of like, no, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. <laughs> Come on, get out here. We're doing it. And so we're fill up that bucket. We're going to have blackberries in like December. Come, you know, we got to pack this. We got we to get all of this stuff. Look, at. there's another ripe one. No, reach for it, Soren. You can do it. You can do it. That's my son. 
Uh, and then I had this thought, I'm like, if, I, if we strip this blackberry bush clean, uh, you know, like, th- th- that means all the other neighbors that walk back here, and are, they're not going to get any. Then I was like, well, they can go to Safeway, you know. <laughs> no, we, so we stopped after a little bit. You know, if, you know can back in the, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have Safeway. I don't know if you knew that. Um, they didn't have Fred Meyer. So, like, one of the ways that you, like, you, you, cared for those who didn't have property, who didn't own a field, was that you didn't pick everything. And you allowed people to go into your field and take. Like a small glimpse of this is the people that have, you know, the vegetable gardens like in the front of their house, right? You seen those? You're like, why would you do that? Well, that's probably why. But, but maybe ask still before, I don't know. Um, but this is a picture of like Nehemiah's thinking about this as he's hearing the cries of his people. And then he probably remembers what was said to be the wisest man that's ever lived. What he said in um, Proverbs 19:17, Solomon, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. That's an audacious statement. And he will reward them for what they have done. So on one hand, what I'm calling the crisis of character is he has his faith legacy that issues a certain response and, and, and a certain ethic that he is to live by. But on the other hand, he has what is culturally permissive for a governor in the Assyrian world. And what is culturally permissive for a governor in the Assyrian world is to go up to anyone that has property and say, hello, person that has property. It looks like this field could yield this amount at the end of the harvest. Therefore, I will, ish, I will tax you according to what I think is potential for this field to reach. Oh, and by the way, the taxes are due at the beginning of the harvest, not at the end of the harvest, and so there's no guarantee that you'll get what I'm saying you will get from this field. Oh, you don't have money because you haven't sold the crop that you haven't grown yet? Well, we'll give you a loan for that at an incredibly high interest rate. You can see the situation compounding. And all of a sudden, people essentially become indentured servants to the governor. Now, again, I am not trying to wade into issues of taxation, interest. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to give a glimpse of the situation that was probably in Nehemiah's mind and Nehemiah's heart. And here's the thing. Beyond the specifics, there is a situation all of us are in where we find ourselves in a culture, in a character, a crisis of character where we can follow what we know Yahweh, what we know God, what we know our faith legacy, our faith calls us to, or we can slip into what is ever culturally permissive in this moment. So Nehemiah's situation is very much like ours. And the question is, what do we run after? Do we allow ourselves to kind of conform to whatever culture says in a certain moment. Maybe we run after accomplishment only to later on. What do we do? Or do we find as best we can a way to yield to the Spirit and be loyal to the way of Jesus? This is the option always before us. Do we allow the first rebuilder to do a work of rebuilding in us? So out of that, the rebuilding in our world happens as a result of the internal rebuilding God has first done in us. I want to spend the rest of our time just looking at what I'm calling three marks of character. Three marks of rebuilder's character. The first one is what I'm calling reverence. 
You can look in verse 9 of this chapter, and it says, So I continued... <laughs> you got to love Nehemiah. I, I get a kick out of this guy. He's like, they're silent. He's like, I'm not going to stop. Okay? You're, you're quiet. I'm like, so I continued. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God, fear of our God, to avoid the reproach of the Gentiles? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us not stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Now again, not wading into the... Uh, you know, the interest rate, you know, I'm not wading into the economics of Israel in this particular time, but what we see is, is that there's this principle here that Nehemiah expects a fear of God, a reverence for God to impact a person's life. For Nehemiah, he says, shouldn't you live out of a fear of God and thus act in this way? In verse 15, he says the exact same thing. He goes, I, out of fear of God, acted this way. For Nehemiah, fear of God is not a personal, private thing that exists in one's own personal life, but a thing that has implications for all of their life. Fear of God is demonstrated in how you treat your neighbor and the other and those without and those with. In fact, you can tell the person's, a person's fear of God, but how they treat other people. The, the rabbi's uh, tradition, uh, a certain rabbi tradition of, of how the yarmulke was, was, was thought up was that we need something to remind ourselves in prayer that there is always something above us. And so by the act of wearing this Jewish prayer hat, the yarmulke, it's rem- we're daily reminded, we're minute by minute reminded that there is someone above us, that I am not the end, but there is someone greater. I was talking to a, um, a church history professor, a friend of mine, a mentor, and uh, you know, oftentimes I, I reach out to him when I've got questions, I'm wrestling with something, and uh, you know, he studied the saints, he studied history, and he, he always draws out such rich wisdom from me. I think all of us need people like that in our life that we reach out to, we talk to, and I, uh, I, so I was like, I asked this question that I've been thinking about. It's like, what does it look like to finish well? Don't you want to finish well? To think 50 years of faithfulness with fruit all over you, like fruit everywhere, like you people tell you, you impacted my life. I mean, don't, don't we want that? Do you want that, Anchor? We want that. I'm not talking 15 years and flame out. And if, but if, and if we're in a situation where recovery is necessary, where a rebuilding process, God will meet you there. He's not, he's not ashamed from you. He will meet you in that point. I want to assure us of that. But our heart, I think our heart cries out for, like, how can we finish well? How can fruit be a thing that's a part of our life? That's what I want for myself. It's what I want for you. And I asked him this question. He goes, you know, Brian, I was, I've been thinking about that actually myself, and I, I talked with a, a, a leader who had a, a mess up that caused some strain in his uh, life, and he was working through finding his way forward after that mess up, and I asked the question, uh, at what point did you stop loving Jesus? This church history professor asked this leader, and the leader said, I never stopped loving Jesus. I just stopped fearing God. I just stopped fearing God. I stopped having reverence. I stopped thinking about someone beyond me. I, I, it was almost as if life, life concluded with who I am and I actually conformed my faith to, to, to my interests and allowed Jesus to kind of become somebody that was just reinforcing what I already like. 
I stopped fearing God. Can I just ask this question? Like, what do, like, and I'm not talking about you specifically, but what do culturally we revere? We don't really revere our country. Some people do, and, and I, if I could just say, sometimes it borders on idolatry. If we, you know, there's the, a balance there. But we typically don't revere our country. We typically don't revere companies. You know, 30 years ago, I remember reading a story uh, of, of IBM where they, at the beginning of the day, they'd hold hands and sing a song about IBM. Like, I don't think any company does that anymore. That would be weird. I mean, weird. We're usually looking for the, the, the whatever, that, you know, next thing, and I think that's healthy and good, and, but it's just not typical that we kind of revere our companies that we work for. We don't often revere family in, in a way, and culturally speaking, not you guys, but we don't really revere God, typically. We end, you know, like, some of us, you know, like in this world, we revere Beyonce, but she doesn't require obedience, right? So in the end, like, if you really think about it, like, culturally, you know, like, we just revere ourselves. We're the biggest thing. So it makes sense that there's so much tribalism, there's so much divisiveness, is because culturally the greatest thing is ourself. That's not a way for community to happen. There's this picture that Nehemiah says is, Nehemiah says, hey, it's like when you revere God, when you revere God, you live in a certain way that that demonstrates a, a loyalty to God who calls us to love. Irrespective of how we're feeling. Scripture says that that the fear of God, now I have to say, fear of God is not a craven fear. It's not I'm hiding and I'm ashamed because I'm afraid. That's not the fear of God. In fact, as you probably know, Scripture says perfect love casts out fear. So the fear of God is this reverence for the one that is greater than us. It's a recognition of our relative smallness and his infinite bigness. And scripture says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's not, it's just like if you want to become wise, if you want to, if you want to step towards wisdom, fear of God is the first step. If we're going to be a community that embraces the internal rebuilding work before the external rebuilding work, or in conjunction with it, that, that doesn't value accomplishments over character, but, but values character over accomplishments, that doesn't see people in light of how great things they've done, but see people in their connection to others and their, their loyalty to Jesus. If we're going to be a community like that, we have to be a, a community marked by reverence for God. Next thing I, I see as a mark of character from this passage of Scripture is what I'm calling resolve. Resolve. Verse 12, you know, that they respond. They say, we'll give it back and we'll not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Uh, then I summon the priests. But Nehemiah doesn't stop. He doesn't like codependently say, okay, good. That was an awkward conversation. Glad to move past that one. He doesn't, he doesn't stop. He says, he says, uh, I summoned the priests and I made the nobles and the officials take a note. He's like, sign something, you know? And, and then I shook out the folds of my robe. That's where he's kind of like shaking it out. And he, he says, if anybody breaks, if anybody like moves against what we've all committed to, there's gonna, you know, there's gonna be like results and consequences and stuff. He's like resolved. He keeps pressing it. Now, 
like right now, like typically if someone has a resolve, like a resolve or is resolute in a thing, lots of times it alienates other people. We are resolved culturally, it kind of re- it typically alienates others because we're like, you know what is on your newsfeed where the resolve people have for certain things? And it alienates. Or on the other end, we kind of like, conform kind of codependently in a chameleon way to anybody that's around us because we don't want to kind of be, you know, awkwardly sticking out or raising out our, our opinions. We kind of do one or the other. We resolve in a way that alienates or conform in a way that's codependent. Like, what if we resolved to embrace the way of Jesus? We resolve to repent. That's not an archaic, weird religious word for, you know, fundies, you know, outside of sporting events. The Greek word repent means to rethink, metanoia, to rethink. Martin Luther said that that life is repentance, that we're constantly learning about ourselves and learning about God and adjusting as we continue to calibrate to the holiness and love of God and, and our gifts and our brokenness. That's this journey of repentance. We resolve to repent. We resolve to continue learning. We resolve to embrace justice. I had a conversation with the guy after our first gathering. He goes, okay, justice is such an abstract, esoteric thing. And I'm like, oh, you're so right. So grassroots justice is just this. It's find the person that's lonely in your life. You know that person. And make some time to help them know that they have somebody that they can talk to. That's, that's, a, that's a grassroots justice thing. Find the person that's hungry and invite them over for a meal. We all have these people in our life. This is grassroots, everyday neighborhood justice. Resolve to be that. Resolve to put that into practice. Resolve to share the gospel. We, like, us followers of Jesus, we believe that, like, there is no other name under heaven of which people could be saved. So we gotta, how can we love with our deeds and share the gospel with our deeds and share the gospel with our words, believing that to be true? Let's resolve to do that. Let's resolve to live with compassion. Let's resolve to live in community. Let's resolve to love. Wouldn't that be great that we resolved in those ways? We, had, we were resolute in those areas. This is a mark of a rebuilder that's allowed the rebuilding work to happen in her and him. The third mark of character is what I'm calling, that's just, that's not what I'm calling, it's just the word, integrity. <laughs> Check this out. In verse 15, He says, but the earlier governors, those preceding me, a little self-congratulatory, Nehemiah, we'll forgive you, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to the food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people, but of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Check it out. There's that in. Out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall, and all my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. What Nehemiah is saying as he's reflecting as in this kind of journal that he's writing, he's like, I wasn't demanding anything of the people that I had not personally embraced. I was not asking the community to embrace an ethic that I hadn't personally embraced. I wasn't saying do that, and I wasn't doing that. You know, when, when somebody says, when they say something, when they declare something, when they, when they communicate something, and then they don't follow what they've communicated, that is a recipe, that's disintegration rather than integration. That's not integrity, that's disintegration. The idea of disintegration is things are falling apart. Integration is things are coming together. 
A person with integrity is the same person in all the different spheres of their life. That doesn't mean that they tell their mom everything that they tell their spouse. That'd be weird and awkward and inappropriate. But that they show up as the same person in relationship to their mom as they do to their spouse. This is integrity. And here's the thing. I have a professor who is a business professor at the university that I went to, and he, he has done research on trust, and he goes, one of the main ingredients of trust is integrity. Because if I can see that you're the same person here as you are there, then I can learn that I can put trust in you because you're not gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna be the same person doing the same things in the same spaces. And Jesus followers, like, one of the greatest things we can do is to be people marked by integrity, not asking the world to do anything that we haven't first done. Not asking our fellow followers of Jesus to not do anything that we haven't first done. We can say, hey, I'm on the journey too. Let's embrace this together. And that's actually vulnerability. And that actually raises the trust even higher when there's vulnerability and integrity. This is just another picture of Nehemiah. And band and prayer team, you can come forward at this time. I'm going to talk a little bit more about the prayer team in a second, so hold that mental cue. It's a kind of a thing we're returning to at this stage, Anchor's Life. But I want to read this passage of scripture um, right after I ask this question. I kind of feel, and I think we all sense this, I kind of feel we're at this cultural precipice where, especially as followers of Jesus, we need to ask the question, what do we want to be known for? What do we want to be known for? Anchor, what do you want to be known for? Do you want to be known as a community that looks like Jesus? Do we want to be known as a community that has allowed the deep rebuilding work inside of us to happen and for us to move towards the brokenness, not out of a dominating and domineering spirit, but out of a spirit marked by compassion because we have received compassion first from the great rebuilder himself? What do we want to be known for? Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, hey, this is what you should be known for. Philippian church, this is what you should be known for. In a culture out of balance that had not been touched by the gospel, the first century city of Philippi, modern-day Macedonia, Paul saying, this is what you need to be known for. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, in your community, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He didn't say, hey, check out my resume, respect. But he relinquished and served. And Paul's saying, that's how you do community. That's how you reflect the character of Christ. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant He didn't have to. He could have came in on a war horse, bringing all of heaven with him. But he was born in a manger, learned how to walk, humility, made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. This is how you do community. This is how you establish integrity. This is how you are marked by reverence for God. And this is how you show resolve. You humble yourself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul's saying, live a life of sacrifice. 
But it doesn't, it's not just that we go low. When we go low, Jesus raises us up. You know that? Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that every, every, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and acknowledge, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's saying that's how you do community. And I'm saying that's what we want to be known for, right? Is that what we want to be known for? We have a treat. We've always in the history of Anchor, two and a half years, uh, we've done communion. We're going to start doing communion weekly again. Underneath um, is this communion. And I want to say some of us in the room aren't yet followers of Jesus. Today could be the day. And this is what communion is. It's saying that, that all the stuff in my life that, that, that I regret, that I know that I did wrong, the things I don't even know that I did wrong, but I still did them wrong, all that stuff in my life does not define me. It doesn't define me because of what Jesus did on the cross defines me. And if you're a new, if you're like, haven't heard that message, all you have to do as a first step of following Jesus is saying, yes, God, would what happened on the cross define me and not my sin? God, would you, would, would you, would I, would, would you take that from me so that I can take the crown that you give me? And as you take the bread and the cup, you can be reminded of that or know that for the first time. You can do it at any point in your time. I hear it ripping already, but anytime during this next song, you can take that communion and do it at your own pace. Don't feel rushed. Do it at your own pace. And then also, we have prayer stations on both sides. Um, and here's the thing, is that I hope that there's something in this message that has touched a nerve, touched something that the Spirit of God maybe is doing. And the next step on that is possibly prayer. So we have people that want to pray with you, that want to seal and start the work of what God is doing and, and, and be with you and, and, and pray for you and pray with you. In fact, I'm going to go down there and get prayer myself. So as we sing this last song, take communion and be reminded of God's love. Step towards prayer and, and open up to what God is doing. And let's be known by the love and way of God 